0: When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across to the Sea of Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The disciples, the the sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea, coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him in, into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Thanks, Stephen. That might be the first time anyone has ever used that microphone <laughs> with no problem. So <laughs> we, we hit a new level at Grace Church today. Hardy Minnesotans, welcome. Glad you're here. Time change and a pile of snow, and you're still here to praise the Lord. He's, he's worthy. Any of you remember the two main divisions of John's Gospel? I'll give you a second to think. Uh, it's often described or spoken of as the Book of Signs, which is chapters 1 through 12, and then the Book of Glory, which is chapters 13 to 20. I hope, I hope you're already seeing plainly why 1 through 12, what we've, we're halfway through so far, is known as the Book of Signs. There are seven over overall, seven main signs that people point to in John's gospel, the turning of the water into wine, which we've seen, the cleansing of the temple, which we've seen, the healing of the official's son, which we've seen, the healing of the paralytic, which we've seen, and then last week, the feeding of the 5,000. Yet ahead of us is the healing of the blind man and the raising of Lazarus from the dead. There are a number of other I put in scare quotes, lesser signs. They're still miraculous, often more done in private though, rather than in public. One of the things that makes the seven signs, the seven signs, is that they were done publicly. Um, but we get to one this morning. One of those lesser signs is found here. Almost immediately after feeding the feeding of the 5,000, which we just saw last week, Jesus, miraculously took a long walk on the surface of the Sea of Galilee. Even after what they had just witnessed, this miraculous feeding of 5,000 people with a few pieces of bread and a few fish, the disciples were still frightened by this new manifestation of the glory of Jesus. To help us get the most out of this passage, there's two main divisions for this sermon. The first, we'll take a look at the text itself and some implications of it. And then second, I'm going to very briefly introduce you uh, very briefly to some biblical theology and, and four really remarkable themes that we see in this passage that are found throughout the entire Bible. My main aim or the main thrust of the text is to help you to see that Jesus is greater, as Mark said at the very beginning, than you can ever imagine. And every time the disciples think they get him pegged, he reveals yet more of his glory. So the main takeaway for us is to learn increasingly this morning to love Jesus for all of who he is, that we might live more fully in light of that. Let's pray. God, we we need not just... Minds to comprehend, although we need that. We need you to expand our mental capacity this morning to grasp this still greater measure of the glory of Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, who came into the world to take away the sins of the world. We need, we need greater brain power to be able to grasp this added measure of glory, but, but at least as much and in some ways more than that, we need we need you to expand by the power of your spirit, our ability to feel this in our being. This isn't just an idea or a concept or a historical a historical reality. It is those things, but this is God Himself revealed in greater glory. We we are made by you to to feel this as well, and through those things to live differently in every way. That 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 Jesus that Jesus is lord of the water means we need to live differently. I pray that you'd help us to see how and to delight wherever you give us the strength to do so this morning. I pray all this in Jesus name. Amen. So after feeding the 5000, John John 6:15, so John 1 through 15, Uh, is the feeding of the 5,000. And at the very end of that section, chapter, verse 15, it ends with John letting his readers know that Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So it sort of began, chapter 6 began with that, and then uh, 15 ends with that. It's significant. If you just have John, if that's all we have is John's gospel, He kind of, he, that is John, makes it seem as if Jesus just sort of slid away, fed the 5,000 and just sort of ditched everyone, including the disciples, and and just left them to figure out what they were supposed to do. If we didn't know any better, verse 16 sort of seems like you can see it up on the screen like they waited around for a bit. Jesus isn't here. We're not, not sure where he is. They waited for him to return, but when evening came and Jesus still wasn't back, that his disciples went down to the sea and got in a boat and started across to the Sea of Capernaum. It sort of seems like what happened. But John's account is not all that we have to go on. Matthew and Mark's Gospels both speak to this as well. And Matthew's in particular adds something important that we should be aware of. Chapter 14, verse 22 in, in Matthew, immediately, that is after feeding the 5,000, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat. He, he commanded them to do what John describes that he did, or what they did. He commanded them to get in the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. You guys go ahead, take off. I'm going to let these people go. And after he had dismissed the crowds, Matthew says, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. We get, we get a few more details, and that's helpful. In other words, far from simply slipping away and and ditching them, Jesus gave clear instructions to his disciples, and far from accidentally, again, it kind of seems like he accidentally missed the appointed departure time, the boat took off without him. Matthew tells us that sending the disciples off ahead of him was an intentional act so that he could do a couple of things, so that he could release the crowds, so that he could have more time to pray by himself, and ultimately, so that he could perform a miracle for the disciples, Jesus sent the disciples ahead of him in the boat, then indicating that he would catch up to him at some time do you Do you think at all what they thought he meant i I, I feel like maybe I do this more than normal because you all don 't talk to me like this, but i 'm always thinking what what are they what are they thinking he 's thinking <laughs> you know they 've learned by now he 's going to do something pretty awesome but what are they thinking he's thinking by doing this? That how is he gonna catch up exactly in this situation? Where is he gonna meet up with them and and how? It was fairly common for Jesus to operate on a timeline not entirely understood by the disciples, were meant to imagine that they just continue to do what Jesus commanded and tell Jesus told them otherwise. Just get in the boat and head back. And so I'm just going to keep doing that. Well, that's a great lesson for us as well. We may want to know more of God's will for our lives, maybe even in some particular thing. John John brought up this morning in Berea and the lesson on prayer. Maybe you're really wondering what God would have you do after you graduate from high school. Is it school or work or if so, what school or what work? And I'd like to get married, if so, to, to whom? I'm Maybe I like somebody. Are they the right person? Maybe you're in a job and you're wondering, is it time to switch? I don't, I don't, there's lots of parts of this that aren't fulfilling. Well, the disciples again give us a really good lesson. They continued to do what Jesus commanded them to do until Jesus made clear that it needed to be otherwise. We may want to know more of God's will than he means us to have. And so we simply continue to obey. Consistent with that pattern, the disciples simply continued making their way across the sea. And as they did, however, verse 18 tells us that the sea became rough and a strong wind was blowing. Again, it seems like this went on for quite some time. According to verse 19, the disciples rode through darkness and wind for about three or four miles. It's interesting. Histori- or we can We know even now, but... An interesting fact is that the Sea of Galilee is around eight miles wide. It's longer, but they were going across. It's about eight miles wide, which means they would have been almost in the middle of the night, almost in the exact middle of the Sea of Galilee. It's around the third watch, Matthew helps us to understand, around the darkest time of night, around 3 a.m. It was then that they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near, the boat, from their reaction, which we'll consider more in just a minute. But we can tell this is not exactly what they were expecting. I, I I just said a minute ago, you ever think about what they thought Jesus meant or how exactly they would connect back up? It's not obvious how they thought Jesus would make that happen. Would he just sort of walk around the lake? Did he have another friend with a boat that he was going to hop on and, and make his way over later, Some something else? Whatever they thought, it's obvious this wasn't it. It never seemed to occur to any of them. i I, I have a feeling he's just going to walk across the water to us in the middle of the night, in the middle of a windstorm. in all seriousness, who would have expected that? How could anyone have expected that? And so, as we can easily imagine, verse nineteen says they they were frightened. It's interesting to me that the disciples were not at all afraid, according to Matthew, Mark, or John, Luke doesn't describe this, of being on rough water, in a windstorm, in the dark, in the middle of the night. Of course, some of them were fishermen, of course, but it's interesting that none of them were afraid of the things probably most of us would find scary, but they were afraid when they saw Jesus. Matthew and Mark explain that when they first saw him and they didn't know what to make of it and they thought maybe this is a ghost. But it seems that was only because they still had no category in spite of what they'd seen. Jesus keeps doing it a little differently. And so from turning water into wine to, to, to healing and here's a new one altogether. And that seems like It was less about thinking it was an actual ghost and more about not having a category yet for what Jesus was doing. In other words, their fear was more tied to this fuller revelation of who Jesus was than anything else. It's really hard not to think about the famous line concerning Aslan here. Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of, of course he's not safe. He's a lion, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. In other words, Jesus' glory is such that there's a kind of genuine awe and wonder, even a kind of fear that are a part of an appropriate response to encountering him. Having been given no small glimpse of his glory here, the disciples were right to tremble. And yet, as is always the case for those who trust him, remember this grace. Jesus said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. There are perhaps no sweeter words that we can hear. Given who we are and our sin and our rebellion and our first father, Adam, in our corrupted nature and corrupted choices, there are perhaps no sweeter words that anyone can hear. To know anything about who God is and who you are in relation to him apart from Christ, there's perhaps no sweeter words that we can hear. In the midst of our doubt and difficulty, in the midst of our pain and persecution, in the midst of our suffering and sadness, in the midst of our fear and failure, there is nothing more healing and helping than to hear our Savior say, it is I. Do not be afraid. I am with you. It will be okay. I am here. Nothing can harm you. I love you. You are accepted. Certainly filled with relief at that revelation, John tells us that they were glad then to take him into the boat. Again, it was dark and windy. It was the middle of the night. They were on a boat in obedience to Jesus, but they had to have been wondering when he would, even longing for him to rejoin them. And here he was with them again, and everything was going to be okay. John's concluding clause is interesting. Read in the most straightforward way. It sounds like Jesus performed yet another miracle. It says, And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going, Again, on the surface, it sounds like there was some teleportation happening here. That would have been pretty slick. And and in fact, maybe that was the case. Probably not, but maybe. It's unlikely. Neither of the other gospel accounts say anything quite like this. Uh, More more likely, what John meant was that nothing else of significance happened between the time Jesus got in with them and when they reached the shore in Bethesda. But as we've seen over and over in John, Jesus continued to reveal more and more of his glory. Consequently, each time he did so, the crowds and even the disciples were more and more confused and amazed and, and needed to get to recalibrating yet again. What are we to do with this guy? I mean, I feel like they would have had to ask that every every few days. What are, We thought we knew, we thought we had this figured out, but what are we to do with this guy? He's like no one we've ever encountered and yet every time we think we've found the limit of his wonder, he reveals yet another layer of glory. It's like there's no end to the fact that he's different and more than we've realized even to this point, even though every time this happens, he's still different and more than we've ever realized. Before we move on to the second part of the sermon, I want to, I want to give you just a, a couple of practical applications, things you ought to, I think we all ought to consider doing in light of this newest miraculous encounter with Jesus. Number one, be careful of believing you have Jesus figured out. Just be careful. This is awesome. What I'm about to say is awesome. Not because I'm saying it, but because it's true. It will be our highest pleasure. Listen to this, Grace. Jerry wants me to yell at you because she's assumed you're all tired and not paying attention, but I believe in you. It will be our highest pleasure. Stay with me. Come on. It will be our highest pleasure to spend all eternity exploring the infinite glories of Jesus. Don't allow yourself to fall into the same trap that those who encountered Jesus in John's gospel fell into, the trap of believing they had him pegged. We have the Word and the Spirit, and so we certainly don't need to pretend that we don't know anything. We know much. But we must also humbly acknowledge how easy it is for us, how tempting it is for us to remake God in our image over and over as his first followers did. Grace, it will be our highest pleasure to spend eternity, all of eternity, forever and ever exploring the infinite glories of Jesus. Don't think you can do that yet. Don't think you've done that yet. Number two, the best way to be careful in this is to read and study and pray consistently through the word of God. The primary place that Jesus reveals himself to the church today, including you and me, is in his word. The Old Testament promises of Jesus, which reveals a great deal about him. Additionally, of course, we have the New Testament revelation and the gospels of his time on earth and the things he said Himself, and we have 23 more New Testament books after the Gospels interpreting and explaining the nature and significance of Jesus' person, his life, his death, and his resurrection. If you want to really know Jesus and all of his glory and all that that means for you and me, you have to be a person of the Bible. Read your Bible. Get a Bible reading plan. Read it together with some friends, but work your way through it. Number three, where you find descriptions about Uh, where you find descriptions and teachings of Jesus that don't fit with your current understanding of Jesus, change your understanding, not your Jesus. Grace, we need to be eager to come across passages like this one and allow them to expand and correct our understanding of everything, including who he is and how water works and what it means that he is Lord of heaven and earth. We simply cannot hold on to lies. Tragically, we've all probably encountered, I know I have, and I know I've been this kind of person, but we've encountered way too many people who, when confronted with the Jesus of the Bible, say things. Have you heard any of these? Have you said any of these things? They say things like, I'm too old to change, or that's not the Jesus I believe in, or science has made it clear that this was superstition, this isn't possible, or my Jesus is much more accepting and loving than that, or we can't take everything the Bible says about Jesus seriously, that's, that's childish. You ever heard any of those? Grace, if there is a Jesus worth trusting in, and there is, then he is the Jesus of the Bible, not our own concoction. Number four, worship Jesus. <laughs> Even though we are never... Never exhaustively or fully know the glories of Jesus. That does not mean that we cannot and should not praise Him for the ones we do know. Though we cannot fully know Jesus, we can truly know Him. And one aspect of the gospel, one remarkable thing that Jesus won for us on the cross and through the resurrection is that whenever in faith we praise God in light of the truth that we have in the Word, it pleases God. Our worship is pleasing. It's never complete. It's it's never what he deserves or what it ought to be from us. But when we offer it in faith, in light of the truth that God has revealed to us in his word, it truly brings pleasure to God. He receives it in joy. Number f- five, obey Jesus. Our lives will begin to take on the fullness for which God created us. John 10.10. 10. When we see Jesus' commands like we see instructions on a treasure map. I know I run the risk of overusing this illustration, but I can't think of a better one. When we believe that the treasure described by the map or pointed to in the map to be sufficiently valuable, there is no instruction on the map that will be burdensome. Traveling 500 miles barefoot will be a joy if we truly treasure the treasure. Selling all that we have to finance the hunt We'll be joyful if we truly treasure the treasure. Let us learn from this passage. Here's another one. If you're so inclined, this would be worth writing down, I think. Let's learn from this passage that even when Jesus' commands seem particularly odd or difficult, let's get in the boat and take off without me in the middle of the night into a windstorm, and at some point we'll catch back up. Even when Jesus' commands seem particularly odd or difficult, they are nevertheless the straightest path to the fullest joy. We got to settle on that. Every one of Jesus' commands, no matter what it seems like to us, is the straightest path to the fullest joy. Number six, walk in peace. The heart of the good news of Jesus Christ is that he is always with those who trust him. Unlike when he was on earth, Jesus said, while he was on earth, it's better for me when I leave. It's better for you. Well, him too. But it's better for you when I leave. Why is that? Well, unlike when he was on earth and truly would come and go from the presence of his followers, he is now by the Spirit with us always, even to the very end of the age. He never leaves us and certainly never forsakes us. For that reason, his words that were situationally true for the disciples are now universally true for all who call on his name. Grace, it is I. Do not be afraid. Hear this, believe this, and walk in the kind of peace that this alone can provide, the kind of peace that surpasses understanding, no matter your circumstances. So all that leads then to the second part of this sermon. Ask your discipleship group leader, talk this week in your discipleship groups about biblical theology. It's an important way to study the Bible, and I want you to ask good questions. Grill your discipleship group leader about this. Get, get him to give you their favorite biblical theology text and take it home and read it. And the gist of biblical theology is this. It's the conviction that the entire Bible, Genesis to Revelation, contains one main story by one main author. It is God telling the story of who he is and who we are and, and how we have fallen and how he has redeemed us and what is yet to come through Jesus Christ. The, the whole Bible is one big story with 66 little parts making up that large story with one author, God himself. And so because of that, like any good story, there are certain storylines that make their way through the entire Bible. We find four of them in this short passage. These six verses give us four of these remarkable threads that start at the beginning of the Bible and make their way all the way through to the end. I want to give you these four as a way of further stirring your affection for the greatness of God in the revelation of Jesus, even in this particular few verses. The first is darkness and light. Darkness and light. In the very beginning of John's gospel, this is important, this wasn't by chance, we read this, verse chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. In him was life, that is, in Jesus was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not and cannot overcome it. The theme of light and darkness continues on throughout John's gospel. We'll see that many more times. But even more significantly, though, just what I just mentioned, it continues throughout the entire Bible. The very first words of the Bible, the very first words of the first chapter of the Bible are these. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You probably all know that. But right after that, now the earth was without formless and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. And God said, let there be light and there was light, and God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness, day and night. Unsurprisingly, as well, among the very last words of the Bible, found in Revelation 22, we're almost at the very end, some of the best news that you'll ever hear today, and light and, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. That's awesome. The main point is that God made physical light and darkness to help us understand spiritual light and darkness, to understand the spiritual battle that has been going on since the first garden and will continue on until the final garden. Indeed, there are a few themes more prominent in the Bible than that of light and darkness. This shows up in our passage for this morning. Get this, Grace. It shows up in our passage this morning in the simple fact that darkness is in the absence of Jesus. The scene happened at night as a way of helping us see the true significance of the disciples being without Jesus. Where Jesus is absent, darkness is present. And wherever Jesus is present, there's a kind of light that is there, even if it's dark outside. Every other understanding of light and darkness, every star you see in the sky, every time the moon comes up at night and the sun is in the day, every time you turn a lamp on, every time you see any kind of light in this world, it finds its origin right there. That's why my favorite description of heaven, there's lots of good ones, but my favorite description of heaven is that it is a place without shadows. Think, think about that for a minute. Why are there shadows? The answer is because light on earth is directional. Light in heaven, which is the full glory of God encompassing every aspect of reality, has no direction. It will c- completely overwhelm us at all times. That's why there's no night. There'll be no shadows. The fullness of the presence of Christ will be ours. Night will be gone. Dark will be gone forever. That is the true light of Christ. We get a glimpse of that here. Number two is water. The second key biblical theological theme to see in this passage is is water. Water plays a spectacularly important role in the Bible. Like light, its creation is found right at the beginning, the very first chapter, the very first book. We quickly find out that water is necessary by God's design for life to begin and for life to thrive on earth. But God's word helps us to see that this physical reality, once again, is meant to point to a much, much greater spiritual reality. By the sixth chapter of the Bible, just to, again, right at the beginning, the spiritual significance of water is already thrust upon us in the story of Noah. And Peter explains that for us in 1 Peter chapter 3. The relationship or the connection between Noah's physical deliverance and the greater spiritual deliverance promised to us in Jesus In the days of Noah, Peter says, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, as in in it it, in and of itself, but as an appeal to God for as a but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Just a few chapters in, or earlier in John, I hope a passage has come in your mind. Chapter 4, we read of the significance of water in Jesus' encounter with the woman at the well. He said, if you knew the gift of God, this is the fulfillment of Noah, the fulfillment of what Peter was talking about. If you knew the gift of God and who it is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Again, the main thing for us to focus on is the fact that God made physical water to teach vital spiritual truths. Water is necessary for physical life to begin and thrive, but that is primarily a metaphor for its necessity for spiritual birth and spiritual sustenance. And we see that in this passage this morning, in the simple fact that Jesus brought a type of deliverance from storm and darkness and from lingering unbelief, most importantly, in the disciples through water. Number three, third theme, to have any idea. Grace, this is a big statement I'm about to make, and I'm aware of how big it is. And so I want you to lean into this. To have any idea at all of the holy nature of God is to fear the Lord, to know the fear of the Lord. If you do not have a concept for the fear of the Lord, you do not understand God. That's what I'm saying. Few have understood this better than Jonathan Edwards, and fewer still have captured it as well as he did in his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. In one example, and there are many, he says this, the bow... I wish I could preach like this. The bow of God's wrath is bent. God's wrath is a bow and it's bent. And the arrow made ready for the, made ready on the string. And justice, it's justice, that, that which we deserve. And justice bends the arrow at your heart. I gotta say that again. That, that's amazing. The bow of God's wrath is bent and the arrow made ready on the string. And justice bends the arrow at your heart and strains the bow. And it is nothing but the mere pleasure of God and that of an angry God without any promise or obligation at all. He owes you nothing that keeps the arrow one moment from being made drunk with your blood. How about that? If you don't understand that, you don't understand the gospel or the God of the gospel. To know the Lord is to fear the Lord. That is why God praised Abraham for willingly offering his son as a sacrifice by saying, do you remember? Now I know that you fear God. That is why Jethro instructed Moses to look for able men from all the people. What constitutes an able man? men who fear God when they needed help to govern the Israelites. That is why David regularly describes his enemies and the enemies of God as those who do not fear God. That is why Solomon, in all of his wisdom, recognized that the fundamental distinction between the righteous and the unrighteous, the sinners and the faithful people of God, was whether or not they feared the Lord. A sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life. Yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. And this is why some of the final words ever spoken on the old earth before the new heavens and the new earth will be fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him Who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Bonus there. As I noted, there's no mention of the disciples being afraid in a storm on the water at night. Their fear was tied to seeing Jesus on the water. Grace, may we never forget that He is the one, the same Jesus is the one in whom we live and move and have our being even as he is the one, according to Revelation 19, who will come back to judge and make war. And he is the one whose eyes are like a flame of fire. And he is the one who will be clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And he is the one from whose mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and rule them with a rod of iron and tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty." Grace Church, settle now on the fact that any true understanding of Jesus includes a holy reverence. Your understand, if your understanding of Jesus is entirely tame and containable, you're not thinking of Jesus. Indeed, if any of us remains in our sin and rebellion against God, Jesus will be the instrument of our eternal destruction. But let us also settle now on the fact that Jesus came, that all who fear God might never need to fear God. Jesus' command is one that is echoed throughout the Bible. Fear God that you need not fear him. To trust in Jesus is to come to him in the light and to drink of his living waters and to hear the words he spoke to his disciples in this passage, it is I, do not be afraid. Here's the last one then. And this is also my conclusion. The final theme, the reality of the significance of our choices. You and I make choices. The simple fact is that God created us with the ability and requirement to make choices, real choices. He also made us responsible for the choices that we make. We see this in the most dramatic fashion when Adam and Eve chose to eat of the fruit of the forbidden tree. And chose the consequences of doing so for themselves and all as the catechism says their posterity, namely death. Consequently, throughout the rest of the Bible, people make choices and God holds them accountable to them. To the Israelites, Joshua said, choose this day whom you will serve. And they did. They chose the Lord and the Lord blessed them. On the other hand, the prophet Isaiah prophesied that God would destine his people to the sword and all of you shall bow down to the slaughter. Why? Why? Because they made a choice. He would do so, because when I called you, this is God speaking, you did not answer, and when I spoke, you did not listen, but you did what was evil in my eyes, and chose what I did not delight in. Perhaps most importantly of all, when the Philippian jailer witnessed the power of God and wondered, What must I do to be saved? The simple and immediate answer the disciples gave to him was, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Salvation comes to those who choose to place their faith to believe in Jesus. All of this is captured in our passage in the simple phrase, they were glad, then they were glad to take him into the boat. John's gospel is filled with accounts of those who who were not glad to take Jesus into their boat, even as was the case in every one of our hearts at some point, and some still is, and even as it is the case for many in the world today, there is some mystery as to how our choices and how our responsibility works out in light of certain aspects of God's nature, his sovereignty and his providence, but there is no mystery in the Bible as to the fact that they do. And so I leave you with this. Jesus is greater. This passage helps us to see. Jesus is greater than you ever have or ever will be able to fully imagine. We're given yet another glimpse of that in this passage. One of the main reasons for this kind of revelation, for of all the things John could have recorded, of all the things God could have inspired John to write down or the other gospel writers to write down, of all the things, one of the main reasons for this kind of revelation is that this kind of passage is meant to help us choose to believe in and follow Jesus. And the main reason for that is because that is the means by which God is determined to unite to unite us with the saving, reconciling, death-defeating, fellowship-restoring work of Jesus on the cross and the empty tomb. We don't gain God's favor by making enough good choices or not making too many bad choices. That is not how the gospel works. That's not the good news. The gospel is the good news that we gain God's favor by choosing to trust in the one who did. Choose right now then whom you will serve. Choose right now then to believe in Jesus, to gladly take him into your boat and to find the fullness of life and eternal life that you were made for.